Welcome to the weekly podcast for City Chapel at Slaughter Creek, the world's okayest church, right here in Austin. Get to know us better at citychapelchurch.com. We're so glad that you joined us today and hope you enjoy the message. Today is that there is mercy in the middle. And so uh, if you're here today and you're in the middle of something, uh, I don't know if you're in the middle of a pandemic, you might be in the middle of inequality and injustice, you might be in the middle of unrest, you might, you might be in the middle of anxiety, um, but God has mercy in the middle. You might be in the middle of a, a difficult time in your marriage, you might be in the middle of having teenagers, um, but there is mercy there is mercy in the middle. God has mercy for us in the middle. There is, there is power for us in the middle. God is not abandoning uh, his people when they're in the middle of something. And really, Habakkuk is in the, in the middle. He's a man who is in the middle. But in order to understand Habakkuk, we need to read a few scriptures today. So normally people say that I preach kind of deep. Um, I don't know that that's really true. I don't feel that that's true. I feel like I'm, I, I skim the surface. And so, but today I am going to go a little bit into the deeper end of the pool. So um, you just got to, you just got to like grab a hold with me and we're going to dive into some scripture. I don't know if this is going to be more preaching or more teaching or exactly how this is going to pan out, but I, I really feel like you need to understand something. Sometimes you need to get uh, some knowledge into your brain so that that knowledge can then, can then bring about a greater level of faith. That's what scripture says. The faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of God. So as you receive fresh revelation, you get, you get, you get more wild faith. Uh, and, that's, and that's the idea, that God would take us from domesticated faith to wild faith, the kind of faith that can live on a mountain, the kind of faith that can have feet like deer's feet, like Habakkuk says. He's eating wild berries. He's living up there. He doesn't need a city. He doesn't need a town. He doesn't need Starbucks. He's got, he's got wild faith. And so I believe God wants to take us beyond domesticated faith where we, where we have these, these, these kind of helpers and these, these things that we, these crutches, these things we can lean on. God's shaking some things up and he's strengthening our faith. He's taking us to a new level of faith. And so part of that, though, you have to have some hearing. You got to get some hearing in there. You have to have some revelation. So we're going to read some some seemingly very different scriptures, and uh, we're going to tie them together here uh, in the end. But uh, we're going to talk about how Habakkuk is living in the middle. But before we talk about what Habakkuk is living in the middle of, you have to understand the context of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a prophet in uh, 608, 609 BC is when this letter was written, and he is in one. He's in the middle of violence. Right? He's in the middle of injustice. He talks about that in the first few verses of Habakkuk. That's his original complaint. God, where are you? There's injustice. There, uh, he, says ju- he says the law is paralyzed, meaning it's not sensitive to the people. It can't feel and it can't act. He said there's more wicked people than our righteous people. He's talking about in Judah. He was a prophet in Judah. Judah is the southern kingdom of Israel. And he's, he's in the middle of injustice. He's in the middle of, of violence. And that's his cry to God. But if you zoom out a little bit, you see that not only is, is he in the middle of a particular situation, but in that situation, 600 uh, BC roughly, that's 600 years before Christ. That's also 400 years after uh, a promise that God made to David. So Habakkuk is a man who is in the middle of circumstances he doesn't like, but he is also living among a people who are in the middle of a promise and a fulfillment, if that makes sense. 
So I want to read the promise first and foremost. Let's go to 2 Samuel. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. We're going to be in 2 Samuel um, chapter 7. And uh, we're going to read from verse 12. Uh, Actually, the entire chapter is very interesting. Uh, This is the end of David's life. And David uh, has lived his life. He's, He's ready to die. And he's sitting in his palace. And he says, I have this beautiful palace. And yet God doesn't have a house. God's living in a tent. Because in those days, the tabernacle from the old, from, from the old uh, covenant, from the Mosaic covenant, from the wilderness, was brought into, into Jerusalem, and, and they had set it back up. And David's sitting in his beautiful palace, and he says, man, God, God's living in a tent. I want to build a house for God. Well, God then sends a message through Nathan. So, so David is preparing to build a house for the Lord. He's, he's, he's looking at the old tabernacle, and he's creating plans to build a new temple. Right, And while he's working um, on building something for the Lord, the Lord sends a message to David through the prophet Nathan. And, and, and if you want to read the message, it's the first 11 verses, really. Uh, I'm just going to read the end of that message. But the first 11 verses, I love, even in verse 11, I don't know, we, they don't have it on the screen, but even in verse 11, it says, Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, God's saying, and have caused you to rest from all of your enemies also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. And so, you know, the old timers used to say you can't outgive God. Uh, that's one of the reasons why. Because even while David is working on building a house for the Lord, the Lord says, hey, you know what? I, because you want to build a house for me, I'm going to build a house for you. Now, of course, David's already living in a physical house. So God's not going to build him a physical house. Instead, God is going to build him a generational house which is so much more important than just a physical house because after you die, that house gets sold to somebody else and some other random person lives in there. But God said, I'm going to build David a generational house, a legacy. I'm going to raise up a legacy through David. I'm going to build your house. When God starts building a house, it's a little bit different. And so, and, and so this is the promise that God makes to David. This is known as the Davidic Covenant. Those of you Bible scholars out there, the Davidic covenant, this is God's covenant with David. In verse 12, he says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. That's coming from your body. That's your children who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. So David's not going to build the house. Solomon's going to build the house. He says, he shall build a house for my name, talking about Solomon, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity or sin, I will chasten him or chastise him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But verse 15, he says, but my mercy shall not depart from him. My mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul. And that's, that's something that you need to understand is that Saul was chosen, handpicked by God out of the entire Israelite nation to be the first king of Israel. Saul messed up, I think it was twice. And he didn't even mess up that bad. It was kind of like a little mistake. Like God told him, he basically did God's will on his own timing. Like he did it a little too early because God wasn't moving fast enough. I know none of you can relate, but he was, he was, he was a little bit anxious. He's like, I need to get this thing done. And, but he wanted to do God's will. He, and he risked his life to do God's will. He laid down his life, his family sacrifice. He lost his son to God's will. Like, he's, like Saul is not an awful person, as we would call people awful. 
And yet, the second time he messes up, God sends a prophet to him and says, you're done. You're through. I have selected a man who is after my own heart. And from that point on, Saul had a demon attacking him. Saul got into some other weird demonic things because of it, but God had rejected him. God wrote him off real quick. He, got, he, he said, you're fired, all right? He fired him real fast. And yet, God is now making a new covenant with David. He's saying, I will not remove my mercy from your children the way I removed it from Saul. It's not two strikes and you're out. So it's a new kind of covenant. The Mosaic covenant is two strikes and you're out, or maybe sometimes one strike. The Mosaic covenant, the covenant that God made with Moses on Mount Sinai was there was a, there was a mountain of blessing and there was a mountain of cursing. And if you were obedient, you lived on the mountain of blessing. And if you were disobedient, you lived on the mountain of cursing. But now God is saying to David something that sounds different. And the, the reason I'm getting into the scripture is because, honestly, somebody, uh, one, of our, one of our members from Michigan, Brandon, uh, brought this scripture up to me. And he was asking me about a month ago. He said, there's this weird verse in 2 Samuel that God says he won't remove his love or his mercy from Solomon. And as you get into the history of Solomon, like Solomon was actually worse than Saul. Solomon uh, married a thousand wives. That's called serial, <laughs> serial monogamy. Uh, he, he turned, he, he only had one at a time, but he had a thousand living in the palace, you know. Uh, yeah, he turned the, 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 the temple, he turned the palace into a brothel basically and with all those women he also decided to follow after some of their gods he built up uh, uh, worship places to their gods and told the people of Israel to worship false gods Saul would never have done that and yet God says to David part of his covenant with David is my mercy I won't remove my mercy from Solomon and so it seems as if, and I, I stress the word seems, God doesn't change, but it seems as if God has changed the way he's dealing with people now. So it used to be two strikes, you're out if you're Saul, but now it's kind of like, well, you can sort of mess around a bit. You can kind of, you know, a little, things get a little squirrely, and God understands, though, he's not going to remove his mercy from you. It gets very strange. And so, so Brandon was asking me, he said, what is, what, like, what's going on here? Why would, God, why would God be one way for Moses and another way for David? Now, we do understand that David is prophetic of Christ, that David is a prophetic picture of Christ. And so it's like, okay, so now, are, did we used to be under the law, and now we're under grace, and so we can do whatever we want because his mercy just is new every morning? Like, is that what's happening here? And for a while, it does seem like that. It seems like Solomon could just do whatever he wanted. He could, quote, do no wrong. And, and it's interesting. And so, so you fast forward a little bit. We have this passage where God says, I will not take my mercy from him as I took it from Saul. In your house, he says, and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. This is God's covenant with David. It's a beautiful covenant. And David thought it was a beautiful covenant. And David, David worshiped and said, this is amazing. This is the best thing. He said, this is the best thing God's ever done for me. He's given me this covenant. And making me a king wasn't the best thing. Saving me from Saul, who tried to kill him, wasn't the best thing. Taking him through Goliath and all the stuff that we like to talk about. But God's covenant with David, this is the best thing God's ever said to me. This is the greatest thing. All the Psalms combined, this is the greatest thing. This is the covenant. He's holding on to that. And you better believe the people of Israel were holding on to that. You better believe that when, when Solomon got his 999th wife, 
how many weddings are we going to have? Man, so you better believe the people of Israel said, well, God said God's keeping his covenant with David. And when Solomon brought in these foreign gods and set them up, and they go, wait a minute, didn't God specifically say you shall have no other gods beside me? the big ten, man. Well, God's keeping his covenant with David. And if you thought Solomon was bad, Solomon's son was even worse. And so the, the northern kingdom got divided because of Solomon's sin. The kingdom got divided between a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And, 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 and what, what you see is the northern kingdom going more and more after false gods. The southern kingdom is just Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes. And they're just holding on to Jehovah as best they can. But still, even in Judah, the son of, of David is still reigning. And they got wicked and more wicked and more wicked until finally you come to the day of Habakkuk when, when you had Josiah, who was eight years old when he became king. He'd never even seen a scroll of scripture before. That's how far removed they were from even bothering to follow God's commands. They find a scroll when he's like 16 years old. He reads it and he's like, oh my goodness, we, we've forsaken our God. And so Josiah begins a reformation. He begins teaching people the right things to say, the right way to dress, the right time to celebrate the feast days and all of that. But reformation is not necessarily revival. You can get people to think differently. You can get people to learn the, quote, truth. But if it doesn't change the heart, it's not revival. There's no regeneration in reformation. You can nail some thesis to a door, but if something doesn't happen inside of here... It doesn't actually, you, you might call yourself something different than you called yourself before. You might, you might assemble in different labels and stuff. But if something doesn't happen in here, it's just reformation. Regeneration is what was needed and it didn't happen. Because as soon as Josiah died, Josiah's son said, hey, we're going back to serve Malak. Malak was the God that required child sacrifice every year. You literally burn your, your one baby, you burn your baby alive on the altar. That's what Josiah's father was doing. And now Josiah's son returns back to Malik, returns back to Baal, Baal, he returns back to him and, 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 and the whole kingdom. And this is why Habakkuk is so bothered because he thought they were moving forward. He thought things were getting better. He thought, even when I can't see you're working and now all of a sudden it's like, what is God doing now? <laughs> I can't see anything. And, and, and the kingdom, it seems to be evil. Now, now, now you, you take, but yet God said that his throne would last forever. God's keeping his covenant to David. God's keeping his covenant to David. So you see over here the origination of the promise. And this is why the camera guy's got to work. The, because I, I want you to understand that this is, this is where, this is 2 Samuel. All right, this is the beginning. God makes a promise with David. David's pumped about it. The beginning is always so exciting, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's great. It's just lovely. You got so many dreams about the It's going to be awesome. He's keeping his covenant forever. And then if we move over here to the end, this is found in Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter uh, 1. I think it's verse 32. They'll have it on the screen. The angel appears to Mary, and this is what she says about Jesus. She says, Jesus, he will be great, and we will be called the Son of the Most High God. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. This is the fulfillment, all right? This is, this, is, this is the angel talking to Mary unto you this day. In the city of David is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He will be great. He will sit on the throne of his father, David. This is the fulfillment. This is what David saw back in the beginning, right? And so David gets this wonderful message back in the beginning, this great word back in the beginning, 
But there's, he didn't know how long it was going to take. It was roughly, roughly a thousand years, give or take a few weeks. I don't know. Uh, it was roughly a thousand years. That's a long time. And Habakkuk finds himself 400 years after the promise, 600 years before the fulfillment. He's right smack dab in the middle. And, and, and all of this time, by the way, see, like, like David's like, this is great. My son's going to build a house. He never thought his son was going to marry a thousand girls. <laughs> he never thought his son was going to bring foreign gods in. Have you read the Psalms? Like, that, that, that's not how this works. He never, he, he never would have imagined. You cannot imagine how difficult it's going to be, how messy it is in the middle. When you're at the beginning, you don't know how messy it's going to be in the middle. But maybe, I don't know, maybe David should have figured this one out because David had a beginning too. Remember, he was just a teenager and he gets anointed by, by Samuel. He's anointed. You're going to be king of Israel. Oh, this is wonderful. This is great. I'm going to be king of Israel. And then he takes a step forward and there's a giant right in his path. He never said anything about giants. There was anything about having to even be a warrior. He's just going to be a king. It's a diplomat. It's a politician. You need to get some votes. But no, like now he's got to fight a giant. So he takes on the giant. After he takes on the giant out there, he then has to deal with the giant in the palace, his mentor. So the giant tries to kill him, and that you can sort of understand. You can get ready for that. But when your mentor, when your brother, when your friend, when your father, when your sister, when your brother starts throwing spears at you, that's a whole nother level. You're a little bit more in the middle. You're getting in the middle. So if you grew up in church, you might know you, that's, that's in the middle. Like They don't tell you about that in newcomers class, all right? They don't tell you the spears that are going to fly. They don't let you know. That, and sometimes it comes from the leader. Sometimes it comes from the person you trusted. Sometimes it comes from the person who, who, who spoke truth into you, who built you up, who actually helped you get to where you are. Saul opened doors for David. The only reason David was in the palace to begin with is because Saul invited him in. So the very guy that God used to, to help you take a step forward is also the very guy fighting you every step of the way. And for 17 years, David is on the run from a crazy king, an obsessed and possessed king, a demonic king that's trying to destroy him. And he, like, it gets messy in the middle, and there are opportunities for shortcuts. And David got some opportunities, but he didn't take the shortcuts. How, let me tell you how, you, how you respond in the middle. That, that's what says the most about who you really are. And we saw who David was. And it was great for a while. And then we saw who David was when he saw Bathsheba. <laughs> Some of the middle actually has a name. You know what I mean? The middle sometimes has a name. And, and uh, because in the middle is where you're tempted. In the middle is where you're tested. So God promises you over here and there's this wonderful journey and there's this great destination, but he's going to ask you to walk through the temptation of the middle. And in the middle, he saw Bathsheba. She was somebody else's wife and he was the king. By the way, David, if you think David, like everybody wants to be like David, I don't know why. David would be in jail. If he was today, he would be on death row. He, he wasn't very good at hardly anything, actually. He, he really wasn't. I mean, he was obviously a good worshiper, like with Jesus, but then he would walk out of church 
things would get a little sketchy. You know what I'm saying? Like, he was a terrible dad. He was a terrible dad. His, his son rapes his daughter, and he doesn't do anything about it. Talk about injustice. He is the police. He is the law. And he goes, well, you know, things happen. He doesn't, he doesn't do anything. He doesn't, he doesn't make sure she, like, he just kind of like, well. He, he allows his other son, Absalom, to go around and terrorize the country and mess, mess things up. And he even sacrifices his own soldiers because he doesn't want to confront his children. The dude, like, who's, who's parenting who? I'm not sure. He, 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 can't, he can't correct his own children, and so his own children start taking over the country. He's a, he's a, he's a pretty bad leader. He's a pretty bad dad. He had some good points to him, but my goodness, morally, he's struggling. He, he, he you know, then he has this affair with Bathsheba, and to say it's an affair, that's kind of a nice way to say it, because he's the king. She can't really say no. So it's not that different than his son, actually, I guess. He's father like father like son. And so then to try to cover it up, he murders her husband. Which is why I'm saying, like, he would be on death row. He'd be in jail if he would live today. And, and yet God had called him a man after his own heart. But God had called him that in the beginning. God didn't repeat that promise. God didn't repeat that label after he got in the middle. Because his heart started going after other things. His heart started wavering in the middle. But the, the amazing thing about David, which was very different from Saul is that David knew how to repent in the middle. He knew how to turn around in the middle. He knew how to course correct in the middle. See, Saul, Saul started defending himself. He started getting defensive. And so you might say, well, okay, Harry, this is a wonderful history lesson. How does it apply to me? Well, let me tell you, if you're in the middle of a t difficult time in your marriage, get really good at repenting. Come on, get really good at saying I'm sorry. You don't have to explain yourself. You don't have to show why you're right. Get really good at course correcting. If you're in the middle of raising teenagers, get really good at adjusting because this teenager isn't the exact same teenager that you had before. This teenager is not the same teenager you even had yesterday. You have to get really good at, at course correcting, at adjusting. If you're in the middle of a pandemic, you have to get really good at being versatile. Maybe we have kids' church today. Maybe we don't. Maybe our worship leader has to sit home. Maybe she's here. You cannot get locked into yesterday's solutions when you're in the middle. The stuff that got you here is not the stuff that's going to move you forward. When you're in the middle, you got to get really good at saying, I was wrong, and I'm ready to change. You don't wait until you got everything figured out to then come back and say, okay, yes, I was wrong. I now know the right way to say. No, speak up for those that are being mistreated. Speak up for the, like, like in the middle, can you stand for what's right? In the middle, can you repent? In the middle, can you change? It's so important. Like David shows us that somewhere between the promise and the fulfillment, there is this messy, muddy middle. <laughs> but if you, can, if you can repent in the middle, yeah. ladies, you, you, if you had a bad attitude for a day, I know that never happens, but if you can repent even before the good attitude comes back, even with... The bad attitude hormones. You'll be careful how I say this. Even with the bad, if you can just admit, if you can repent in the, I'm not, I'm not talking to anybody over here. Somebody almost, I'm feeling, 
feeling the Lord is directing me. Ladies, if you, if, you, if, if, if you can respect a man who's in the middle, if you can honor a man who is somewhere between where he was when you met him and where God has appointed him to be, if you can love him well, if you can respect and honor him well in the middle, I guarantee you, he won't be in the middle all his life. <laughs> <laughs> We've got some amens up in here. And guys, 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 look. Your vow, all, all the guys, all the guys, focus in on me for just a moment. We've lost the ladies there. The Lord's convicting. He's moving. It's good. But guys, look, your vow was to love and to cherish. It wasn't to bring home bacon and get a roof over her head. It was to cherish. And somewhere in the middle, that's where we lose the cherishing. If you can cherish her in the middle of the pregnancy, if you can cherish her in the middle of the toddler years, if you can cherish her in the middle of the hormones, if you can cherish, I guarantee she won't, she's not going to stay in the middle. We, 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 like, like, like both sexes here, male and female, like we, we have to have grace for each other in the middle. White and black people, can we have grace for each other when we're somewhere in the middle, somewhere between slavery and full equality? Can we have grace for each other somewhere in this messy middle that we find ourselves in? Like, like can, can, can we give each other a little bit of space to repent? It's amazing how when, when, when a kindness is, is confront, when kindness confronts a mess in the middle, there's space for repentance. There's space for, I was wrong. There's space for, I saw things that way and I was wrong. I, I see things. That, there's, there's space for that. The middle is so, it's, it's, it's messy, but that's where the miracles happen. It's messy, but that's where the transformation happens. God promised you something way back there, but you couldn't even hold it if he handed it to you back there. It's the middle that strengthens your hands and your arms and your legs, and you can carry what he's promised you. So the middle does a great correcting work. It does a wonderful thing. It's messy in the middle, but it's important. So I said, I said for those of you wondering why this, why this leaf blower is over here, in the fulfillment side of things. Um, it's because uh, Brenda, Brenda Miller uh, let, me, let me borrow this on Friday. And um, I don't know, people probably thought I was going to blow leaves with it. <laughs> that's, not, that's not what's happening. We're, one, we're in Texas. There are no leaves. Uh, two, that would require me being outside in this heat. And that's not happening. And so others thought I was going to use it for a sermon prop. They said, oh, you're going to use it. And I, I wasn't planning on it, but somebody suggested it yesterday. And so thanks. I think Carol suggested it. So I'm going to use it for a sermon prop because while I, was, while I was thinking about being in the middle and I was praying about God, what exactly? And I haven't even read from Habakkuk just yet. But <laughs> So this is, this is my intro to my three-hour sermon. Um, but no, I, I'm, I'm whipping out the prop so we're, almost, so it's, you know, we're halfway there. It's... You, you, yeah, we're in the middle. So just, just come on with me. Come on with me. Don't, don't leave me in the middle. You'll never, you'll never get over there. Uh, 
but but no I borrowed it because I've been in the middle of working on um, my favorite car some of you know I got my dream car last year and uh, it's been a blessing but it's also been uh, some work it's been a lot of work uh, it's been a little bit of money and a lot of work it could have been a lot of money but I'm doing a lot of the work which I've never done car work before in my life and so anybody that knows me knows this is very strange uh, for Harry to be doing car work, but I love this car, so I actually enjoy working on it. It's kind of weird, but uh, anyway, I, I, I have a big, plus I have a big garage to work in the church. You know, I just pull in right here, get it up on jack stands. I was, I was right, I was right under there um, during lunch breaks and stuff. I come in early, stay late. I was up till one o'clock in the morning one night, and and anyway, uh, one, one one of the things I was, one of the things I was working on was there's an exhaust leak in 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 my dream car and i and i know that because when i took it to get inspected last year it's past due now so i need to get it inspected now but when i took it to, it's because covid but when i when i took it <laughs> if i got pulled over that's what i'm saying it's covid um, but anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, when, when, when I took it to get inspected last year, like I just bought it like two days, like the day before, and, and I took it to get inspected, and the, and the mechanic said, hey, there's an exhaust leak over here on the driver's side, kind of right over here, kind of in the middle. And he could hear that. And I was like, you can hear that? And he's like, yeah, can't you hear that? And I'm like, no, I hear an engine running, but I don't hear. But he, he has a trained ear, and he can hear it. And so I said, well, okay, I guess. He's like, he's like, but, you know, you just got the car. It's a nice car, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, he gave me the Viper treatment. He said, I'm just going to let you off this time, but as long as you fix it next year, you know, it'll be fine. So I need to get it inspected, so I got to fix this. I got to fix this exhaust leak, you know. And so, 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 so I jack it. I, it's up on jacks. I pull the side seal. It's kind of hard to get the stuff in my dream car. They don't make it easy. And so I, I finally, I, I, I expose I expose the exhaust. And if you guys don't know anything about cars, uh, Justin, where's Justin at? Justin knows. Uh, the exhaust starts at the engine, which is in the front of the car, and it runs all the way back to the back of the car. Okay? And so I checked the front of the car, and that was good. The back of the car was good. That means the problem's in the middle. The problem's always in the middle, I'm telling you. Somewhere between the lovely V10 and the nice big exhaust tip, something's off in the middle. And, and it's interesting, I couldn't hear it. And many of us, I think, we just think life sounds that way. Because that's how we grew up, you know. That's the way our parents talked to each other. That's the way our church was. We just think it just sounds that way. But a trained ear can hear it. I'm telling you, God can hear leaks in your theology. <laughs> God can hear some, like, you know, and, and, and you, 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 you're you just used to it. And so, and so that's why I am. I don't know how to find a leak. If I have to rely on my ears, it's not going to happen. So I went to YouTube University. YouTube University has helped me so much. Uh, they said, the guy on YouTube, he said, grab a, grab a leaf blower and stick it in the back of the exhaust block off I have two exhaust pipes so block off the one you know semi stick this up into the exhaust turn this thing on and it'll pressurize the system because you're sending air into the system and you're not letting it get out so it's pressurizing the system and I thought man this is exactly what's happening in America right now God's pressurizing the system when you pressurize the system then you go along with some dawn dawn dish soap so this is not, if, if you destroy your car, this is not, I'm not liable. I'm just saying, the guy on YouTube said, to go along with Don Dishoff, and you pour it on, the, <laughs> I just thought of that, you pour it on the, on, on the, on, on all the connections, because Dawn is really bubbly. 
And if any air is escaping, you'll still see bubbles. So there was a, one connection that I was like, that one looks sketchy. I think that might be it because I'm, I'm a genius mechanic now. And so I, I poured a bunch of Dawn soap on it. And sure enough, like a whole bunch of bubbles came out. I'm like, oh, yeah. And so I dry it all off. I go and get, I, 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 I go and get this putty stuff. I seal it up. And it's, and it's great. But, but th- I think that's what's happening. There's a lot of pressurizing of the systems. God's, God, God will sometimes allow pressure. Pressure doesn't create the leaks. It just reveals where the leaks are. So God will allow a pressurized marriage sometime to reveal where some leaking, leaky love is. There's some leaky love. You had some real love and then you had some leaky love. God, 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 God will pressurize a household to reveal where some of the leaks are. We, we got a leak in our roof. Sometimes he'll send a lot of rain to figure out, help you figure out, there's something going on right there. But sometimes because we don't have trained ears, we don't hear it, we don't see it. We don't see the problem with our theology. For 400 years, the people of Israel didn't see the problem with their theology that, well, God's keeping his covenant to David. God's keeping his covenant to David. David's children are sinning like sailors, but God's keeping his covenant with them. Apparently sailors are really, they, they cuss a lot. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry to everybody that's in the boats. That's not a this on you necessarily unless you are a cusser in which case you ought to be convicted God's God's David's children are sinning like right like they're living like pagans yet God doesn't remove the, the kingdom from them no God's keeping his covenant with David God's keeping his covenant with David it, let me let me let me just put this down for a second let me just encapsulate for you the sermon of the day all right now we go to Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 12 this is Habakkuk's response to God's response to Habakkuk's question God's question yeah yeah I do eventually get there it, it takes a minute God's God's initial response to Habakkuk so, so Habakkuk has a problem he says I'm living in violence you're not doing anything about this about this wicked king and these wicked people all around me Lord I want you to do something and then God says hey even when you can't see it I'm working I am doing something and he says look around and be astounded actually like I preached on a few weeks ago wonder at the wonder of what I'm doing. You're so busy wondering at the problem. You're so busy wondering at the pandemic. You're so busy wondering what's going to happen. The, he, God says, no, lift your eyes. L- look around. Epi, epi blepo. Look, look around. And s- that's, that's the Greek word, epi blepo. For those of you that don't think, I'm not, I'm not like speaking in tongues. This is just, this is just the Greek word. Uh, look around and see what I'm doing. I'm, I'm working around you when you can't see me in front of you. I'm working around you. And, and, but the, the, the burn is, the rest of the, that's verse 5. Verse 6 through 11, God explains exactly what he's doing. And it's actually worse than Habakkuk thought. He says, man, I'm working. And sometimes it's, it's, it, it, is, it is a kind of faith that can believe God is doing things behind the scenes, even when you can't see him. And that's a kind of faith that we sang about today and that we believe in. But there is a next level kind of faith. Because when, you, when you're just imagining that God's doing things behind the scenes, mostly he's doing things that you would agree with if you were God. <laughs> that you're good with. I can't see it. He's working all things together for my good. It's all coming together. And, but actually what God was doing is he was raising up the Chaldeans. And I preached on that last week. God won't be held captive to your version of justice, your version of goodness. So he's working. The greater level of faith is to step back and see him doing something that you don't agree with and say, I trust your heart anyway. I trust your plan when I don't even agree with the process. 
I trust your plan. And so that's what that, so, so God hits Habakkuk with a little bit of revelation of what he's doing. And now in verse 12, Habakkuk responds to this. And look at Habakkuk's response. He says, are you not from everlasting? Oh Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. Oh Lord, you've appointed them for judgment. Those Chaldeans, those sinners, those pagans. Oh rock, you have marked them for correction. It's interesting, when, when Habakkuk gets a glimpse into what God is actually doing, the first thing that comes to Habakkuk's mind is, wait a minute, are you not eternal? He starts questioning the nature and character of God, which is what happens in the middle. Your circumstances can cause you to start to question is God from everlasting? Now, when he says, are you from everlasting, he doesn't mean, well, I mean, he means to some extent, have you not always existed? That's what everlasting means. It has to do with the eternity of God, uh, the eternity past. Scripture says he's from everlasting to everlasting, meaning he has no beginning and he has no end. Most humans can imagine a God who doesn't have an end a lot easier than imagining a being that doesn't have a beginning because everything we know has a beginning and most of us, God says has put, he's put eternity in our hearts so we can believe in something that has no end but it's really hard to imagine you just you your brain will start smoking the gears will start smoking if you start to imagine a god who has no beginning and this is what habakkuk is questioning are you not from everlasting aren't you eternal now it's, it's not just a theological problem of oh i think maybe god's not eternal uh, instead, especially in the Old Testament, the, the eternality of God or the, 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 the past tense eternality of God is connected to the immutability of God. That's a $5 word for unchangeableness. Because if you have a God who can change, you have a God who's not eternal because any change, whether up or down, would have to be multiplied by infinity. And if you have a God who at one point got better than he currently is, if you multiply that betterness by infinity then backward, then you have a God who was worse at one point. And if he was worse at one point, he would have been worse at another point until he finally didn't exist. Somebody created him. So it was just kind of big stuff. But this, but this is where you get into like, uh, like, like, like Mormonism, where they believe that Jehovah was created by somebody else, because it's just easier to imagine. It's easier to imagine a, 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 like, a, like an infinite succession of people being created by other people than it is to imagine a being which has never been created, because that means that being has never shifted, never changed, never learned a thing. He's never moved upward. He's also never moved downward. He's never compromised. Uh, because if he had, you multiply that down or remove him by infinity, you have a God who currently doesn't even exist. So he's not here. And so when God, so, and so, and so when Habakkuk says, are you not from everlasting? He's really saying, wait a minute, I thought you made a covenant with David way back here. And I thought that promise still stands, great is your faithfulness. Like I thought, I, like I thought I knew you. I thought I knew you. And he questions the character of God, but one thing he doesn't question, he makes a statement, we shall not die. We shall not die would have been the sermon of the day, I think. It probably was the best-selling song from ancient elevation band, that great, that great Jewish band. We shall not die, we shall not die, we shall not die, we shall not die. I've seen you move, you move the mountains, you 
deliver the people of Israel out of I mean they have a lot of history to sing about God can do it again and it's great like oh man like ancient elevation they got it and then and then and then it's very similar also to the ancient Bethel song which is another great Jewish band from back in the day who wrote a similar song not at all the same though same chords but it's called we shall live we shall live it's entirely different they they were written around the same time they both went to the same conference but that's not the that's not the deal i'm just saying these are totally different songs we shall live and we shall not die they were the best selling songs and these, these, these were the, the, the most popular sermon series, the most downloaded podcast about how God is keeping his covenant to David. You better believe he's a covenant keeping in God. You better believe he's not going to allow the throne of David will be established forever is what God said. So you better believe those Babylonians, they might take out every other nation, but they're not going to take us out because there will always be a son of David on the throne of David. What happened? Well... They had right theology, and they had a slightly wrong application of the theology. And they fell in love, they fell more in love with their application of the theology than they did with the theology. And so when confronted with what God was doing, Habakkuk questioned his theology, and he held on to his application. Satan did the same thing. He was talking to, the, to Eve in the garden, and she said, he, he, he said, well, so what, like, are you allowed to eat from every tree? And he, he kind of knew the rules already. And she said, well, we can eat from all this stuff. We can't eat from this one or we die. And Satan said, let me give you the application. Let me just give you the truth. You shall not die. And then he went on from the bad application to produce bad theology. For God knows that when you eat of it, you'll become like him. Da, 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 da. So he starts questioning the character and nature of God after, when he has this bad application oh no because God is this you will always be taken care of because God is this you will always have what you need because God is this you will always live in health because God is this your bank account will always be more than enough because God is this. like like it's, it's interesting how we can get certain applications we can hold on to those applications and when we get in the middle we don't question the application that we had we question the character and nature of the God that we derive the application from. And now, just, just to see how, how um, distraught Habakkuk would be, a contemporary prophet with Habakkuk was a guy named Jeremiah. In Jeremiah uh, 22, I think it's 2230, we don't have it on the screen, but in Jeremiah 2230, God said, uh, speaking of the, the king, Jeconiah, who was the son of the son of, or no, he was, he, was, he was the son of Josiah, the brother of the guy who took over for three months, uh, and, then, and then he got assassinated, and then Jeconiah took over. And so Jeconiah was the one who reigned in, in Judah, I think it was 11 years. And God was so sick of Jeconiah's sin that in Jeremiah 22, 30, God said, write this man down, record this man as childless. What do you mean? He has kids. He's got kids. Yeah, but they don't count. <laughs> Just erase those names. They don't count. He, well, he's got kids. No, no. He said, for, for, for no son of Jeconiah will ever sit on the throne of David ever again. And if, you, if, you, if you're wondering how God felt about Jeconiah, he also says, if he were a ring on my finger, I would throw him out of the house. He says, I'm about to cast him and his family into Babylon. They're going to be carried away captives, slaves. It's a brutal thing for a people that for 400 years had been living with this particular application. 
that, hey, God's keeping his covenant. God's keeping. And what that means is God's keeping his covenant. So that means we're good. That means we're good. That means we're good. And now all of a sudden, God says, you're not good. And so that is the question. Is God the God of the Mosaic covenant? Or is he the God of the Davidic covenant? What happens when the same God makes both covenants? <laughs> what does that mean? Where do we stand? Am I eternally secure or forever skittish? <laughs> like, where am I? I don't know, because because like on the one hand, he's like, man, two strikes, you're out. Saul kind of stuff. And the other hand, you got Solomon and all of his messed up kids. And it's like, ah, do whatever you want. And it's, it's very, it's, it's, it's perplexing. You can see why Habakkuk has this version of God. And even in the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews deals with this very thing. The book of Hebrews says, hey, if the people in the wilderness, if they wouldn't enter into the rest that God had for them through disobedience, how much more if we reject Christ, man, we're toast. He's like, don't do it. Don't, don't reject Christ. But at the same time, he also says that there is this, this, this one who offered himself up once and for all. So some people are like, see, once and for all. So it doesn't matter what we do. And other people are like, well, you got to be really careful every step of the way or you might get zapped. It's interesting within the same scripture, like the same book of Bible, it's holding, what it's doing is it's balancing the nature and character of God. Is God just or is he faithful? He's both. He's both. And in this season, in this season of difficulty, it would be real easy to, to preach a sermon series on we shall live and we shall not die. And there's certainly truth to that very statement. The people of Israel would not, quote, die. They wouldn't be cut off. They're still around in Luke 1.32. Not only are they still around, but God's mercy is such, and this is amazing to me. When you open the Bible to the New Testament, the very first page of the New Testament, a book called Matthew, we call it the Gospel of Matthew, but actually the, Matthew doesn't call it the Gospel of Matthew. If you want to know what Matthew calls it, read Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It's not on the screen. You can check it out at home. Matthew calls it, he says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus. That's what he calls his gospel. Oh, hold on. Aren't, isn't the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5? Yes, but the Sermon on the Mount means nothing if you don't understand the genealogy of Jesus. Yeah, but what about the crucifixion and the resurrection? That's in there. Yeah, but that means nothing if you don't understand the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew was a tax collector, and so his job was to know the genealogy of every family in his town. Because if you can't pay, maybe your parents can pay. He's got to know the genealogy. But what's interesting is by this time in Jewish history, by the time Matthew writes his gospel, 10 of the 12 tribes can't trace their genealogy back to Abraham. Because they've been dispersed for 600 years. And so they've intermarried with all kinds of other people. And so it, it, they don't, they, they're called the lost tribes of Israel. The only two tribes that could trace their lineage was, was Benjamin and Judah. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. And in Matthew chapter 1, the entire chapter is all about the genealogy of Jesus. He breaks down 14 generations from Abraham to uh, David, 14 from David to Jeconiah, although he doesn't mention Jeconiah, he just says the time when they were carried away to Babylon. And then he says 14 generations to Jesus. He breaks, he breaks down and he lines it up. But the way it goes is it goes right on down to a man named Joseph. And then he says, to Joseph was born Jesus, not through Joseph. Because Joseph did not impregnate Mary. It's called the virgin birth. Look it up sometime. It happened once. 
Joseph didn't, he wasn't a part of that process. They weren't even married, they were engaged. Joseph, though, you can see the lineage in the book of Matthew, he is a son of Jeconiah. And that's why it's so fascinating when the angel stands before Mary and says, he shall sit on the throne of his father, David. And yet God had said that no son of Jeconiah would ever sit on the throne of David ever again. So what we see here is a conflict, it seems. And the best resolution to it is found in the book of Luke. Uh, I think it's Luke chapter 2. There's another genealogy that works down from Adam goes to Abraham, goes to David. It's the exact same genealogy from Abraham to David as Matthew has. But after David, it changes. Instead of going through Solomon, it goes through, uh, I think his name is Nathan. It's the third-born son of David. Not the royal line. But it's another family tree of David. And that traces right on down, not to Joseph, but to Mary. And it says, through whom was born, of whom was born, Jesus. So this is how God amazingly keeps his promise. That no matter how messy it gets in the middle, he still judges sin in the middle. He still, he still is a God who is just, but he is also a God who is faithful. He maintains his promise. So even in the middle, he is working all things together for him to be able to fulfill his promise. And the way he does it is there's this, there's this royal line and 14 generations later, there's this guy named Joseph. He finds this girl named Mary cute, and he proposes to Mary. Mary is in the same town as him. I don't even know if he knew the genealogy of Mary, but God did. Mary is a descendant, direct descendant of David as well, but not through the royal line. And so God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and this is how God always brings mercy into the middle, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he, he births something new inside of Mary. And so Jesus, babies get their blood from their mother. Jesus has the blood of David in his veins. When the angel says he will sit on the throne of his father, David, he's not kidding and he's not being facetious. He's being honest. It's just not the royal lineage that David thought it was going to come through, but God comes through another lineage and he impregnates Mary so that the actual blood of David can, so that his throne will be forever. The king, the scepter of his kingdom will have no end. The government will be upon his shoulders, is what Isaiah said. And so you have the fulfillment of the promise to David. David, God is keeping his covenant to David. Through 600 years of, of captivity, God is keeping his covenant to David, and he chooses this little girl, uh, this little teenage girl, to, to bring about fulfillment of that covenant. But now, God has to bring about the royal side of his covenant, because he specifically said, your throne will last forever. Not just your family, but your throne. And so he finds a cursed son of Jeconiah. Joseph, who grew up hearing all the stories of how old Grandpa Jeconiah, Jack, jacked up Jeconiah, <laughs> messed it up for everybody. You know, he was in the middle and he couldn't handle the middle. He was in the middle and he had sin. He, had, he was in the middle and he rejected God. He was in the middle and he turned away from God. And so because of that, the, 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 the Messiah cannot come through our line. We don't know how God's going to do it, if God's going to do it. All we know is it's not going to be us. And that's the, 
Once again, that's the wrong application of the truth of the justice of God. Is God just? Absolutely. Does that mean he cannot use you because you're not? Or to put it in a New Testament way, can God be both just and the justifier of the ungodly? <laughs> and, so, and so just like Habakkuk had a wrong application, hey, hey, God's going to keep his covenant, which means we're going to be good forever. No, that's not true. You can also flip it and you can get into condemnation that, well, I messed up that one time. And because my family is like that, and because I have this in my heritage, and because this is how I always respond, and because this is how I've always been, then this is how I'll always be. God can't use me. God can't redeem. God can't bring back. God can't revive. He, 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 he'll use somebody else. But, but, but Joseph grew up under the condemnation that he would never be able to be used by God. Once again, it's a wrong application. And so even when Mary comes to him, and says, hey, this angel talked to me, and apparently something happened inside of me, and, and he said that this, this child will sit on the throne of his father, David. Joseph is like, well, who's, who's your parents? Who are your grandparents? He starts putting all it together. See, we think Joseph rejected Mary because of the scandal that it would be. I don't know that he rejected him because of the scandal or if because he couldn't believe he didn't want to mess up what God was doing. Sometimes we remove ourselves from God's plan because we think we're too, we'll mess it up. We'll dirty the water. We'll muddy. I'm, I got too much mud in the middle. God, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to touch what God's doing. So you go find another son, great-grandson of Nathan or something. You figure something out because I am a cursed son of Jeconiah. This will blow this whole thing up. And so Joseph, because he's living under condemnation, if you live under condemnation, you will act out of condemnation. You will believe you are condemned when God is actually beckoning you, calling you, opening up doors for you, breaking the bonds and the chains of your past, setting you free, setting you up as a picture of his grace and of his glory. But you're too connected to your middle to really even get to your destination. You're holding on to the middle. You're holding on to Jeconiah. You're holding on to a legacy that God never intended for David to have. And so the angel then appears to Joseph in a dream. It says the baby that, 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 that Mary is carrying is of the Lord. This is something God is doing. And God chose you. And God knew about your curse. God knew about your, your great-grandfather's failings. God knew about your family history. God knew who you were when he called you. And so I want you, Joseph, to take her as your wife. And so once again, we see that God is just and faithful. But Joseph has a choice. He can choose to adopt Jesus. When he receives Jesus into his home, Jesus comes, really Jesus is right in the middle of those two genealogies. Jesus is the, the connecting point between the cursed line of Jeconiah and the blessed line of David. He's, he's the connection. And if Joseph will take the hand of Jesus, if Joseph will adopt this baby, then God will complete the circle. God will complete the circuit. He'll complete the connection. And so Joseph does that. 
And it's so interesting, the whole, the whole birth story, I know this isn't Christmas time, but uh, the whole birth story of Jesus is fascinating to me. Uh, God specifically set it up so that, so that he would be born in Bethlehem. And if you know, that's the city of David. That was important. God said, I want this child born in Bethlehem, but Joseph and Mary didn't live in Bethlehem. And they didn't have a midwife in Bethlehem. And so, this is their first baby. Any of you guys have had first babies, you know. You want a midwife or a nurse or a doctor or somebody who knows what in the world they're doing um, to be present. And yet God's like, no, let's just get Joseph and Mary alone in a cave. Which that, so, hmm, this is what it says in Psalm 20, uh, 22. You know, the 23rd Psalm is always our favorite, but Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. He says, from my birth, I was cast on you. Why? Because he didn't have a midwife. So God caught him? This is the, they always used not to get too graphic. They always used to give birth squatting back in the day because gravity would kind of work things out. And the midwife would go under there and they would, they would catch the baby. Well, God didn't catch him. Joseph did. <laughs> and yet Jesus said, from my birth, I was cast on you. God will... God will happily use the cursed hands of the son of Jeconiah to handle the most fragile, most precious thing that he could deliver to the world. I mean, you drop your baby on its head and that's not good. You drop the son of God on its head. Dude, we got problems. You thought Jeconiah had it in for him, man. He's going he's gonna, he's gonna to mess with you. But God trusts the shaky, unsure hands of Joseph to catch his son, to deliver his son, to bring his son forth, to bring him out, to cut the cord, <laughs> to tie things up and hope things aren't bleeding out too much, you know, to deal with the placenta. Like, there was no midwife. There was just... And what, what's God doing? God's redeeming. God's redeeming the line. He's saying, come back in what I'm, to what I'm doing. You used to be involved. You used to be serving. You used to be a part of this. And you thought you were excluded. But that was never the message of my justice. My justice was never to exclude you. It was never to remove you from my plan. My justice was to show my, my strength and my righteousness. And this is what God says, actually, uh, in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. We don't have it on the screen, but talking about Jesus, says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness. From that time and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. Daniel saw those days, and he says, In the days of those kings, of, uh, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. This kingdom will not be left to another people. It will shatter all of those other kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself stand forever. This is what he's doing. He's, he's setting up. You want equality, you want justice. That's found in Jesus. He deals with sin, but he's also merciful. His mercies are new every morning. His opportunity for you to turn to him, for every Joseph, to rewrite the, the family story, 
for every Joseph to redeem, I guess, not rewrite. The family story stays written. Matthew didn't change it. He just said, but then something came after the middle. Something came at the end. So I want to encourage you today. You, you might be in the middle of whatever, but technically, according to this book, you're not in the middle anymore. You are. You and I are after Luke chapter 1, verse 32. There has been a son who has been born. There has been a savior who has come, who has died. The tomb is empty. The tomb is, the, the cross is empty. The tomb is empty. God is ready. The Holy Spirit has been already poured out in the earth. So whatever you might be in the middle of, you're not in the same middle that Habakkuk was. We have seen the fulfillment of the promise to David, to Habakkuk, to every prophet, major and minor, through the entire Old Testament. We now stand on the shoulders of all of those prophets. So we, are, so, so we ought not to have the same despair as the prophets. We ought not to have the same fear as the prophets. We've seen the goodness of God in the land of the living. We've seen the power of God to redeem and restore and renew and, and re, 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 rebirth something, to impregnate something that he had planned all along. We've seen him do it, and we've seen him do it in the most amazing fashion, that the person of Jesus Christ hung on the cross that the love, this is, this is love, vast as the ocean, <laughs> loving kindness as the flood. When the prince of life, my ransom, shed for us his precious blood, who his love will not remember, who will cease to sing his praise, he will never be forgotten through heaven's eternal day. This is, this is the love of God seen, displayed on the cross for us. So Father, we thank you for your mercy we thank you for your faithfulness, but we also thank you for your justice. And while we pray for both, the full culmination of both, we celebrate the goodness that we have seen. We celebrate the example that you have set. We thank you that no one has fallen so far that they've fallen out of the hand reach of God, that the mercy of God extends from the highest star to the lowest hell is what the, is what the hymn, hymn writer said. We thank you for this, this love of God that is so deep that we, our feet can't touch the, 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 the bottom of this ocean and his justice is also equally so deep that our feet can't touch the bottom of this ocean. We submit to your justice and we thank you for your faithfulness. and your commitment to us in the middle of the situations that we're in, situations that our country is in. Lord, we pray that you'd bring peace. We pray that you'd bring reformation. We pray that you'd bring restoration. We pray that you'd bring change. We pray that you'd bring clarity. We pray that you'd bring revelation. We pray that you'd bring your spirit. <laughs> we pray that you'd bring, that you'd expose every bit of leaky theology and every leaky church and every leaky pastor and every, expose all, pressurize the system. Go ahead, pressurize, pressurize my heart, pressurize my family, pressurize City Chapel, pressurize our, 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 our outreach programs, pressurize our tithing, pressurize our giving, pressurize our serving, pressurize our servants, pressurize our pastors, pressurize our leaders, pressurize our people, Lord. 
Let the pressure, the, the wind of the Holy Spirit create a system that can allow for the visibility of the, of the weaknesses that you want to clean out, the weaknesses you want to get rid of, the, that, that, that your justice reveals the weaknesses and your mercy covers the weaknesses, that your justice reveals the problem and your grace gives us power to overcome the problem, that your justice shows us the sin, but your mercy covers the sin, washes and cleanses the sin. <laughs> It's not either or, it's both and. You are both the diagnosis, diagnosis and, 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 the, and the doctor. You're the surgeon. You cut and you sew up. <laughs> you wound and you heal. Thank you for that. We receive the... We, we, Lord, we want to know all of you. We want the kind of wild faith that doesn't just see one side of you, that doesn't just love one side of you. We want to know all of you and receive all of you, all that you have to give, so that we can truly be called your sons and daughters, so we can truly be called yours. In Jesus' name. <laughs>